uh, both playing it badly, uh, but more uh, commonly, uh, watching my beloved Aberdeen FC. I love the sights, I love the sounds, I love the exquisite cuisine, you know, pies, bovril, that sort of stuff. Uh, but most of all, I love standing shoulder to shoulder with my friends Rob and Alan and Dooley and Douglas and belting out songs about how Aberdeen FC is by far the greatest team the world has ever seen. <laughs> Most football teams have songs that their fans all cheer. But there's one song that unites football fans everywhere because how, of how good it is to sing it, but of how terrible it is when you are on the receiving end of it. Picture the scene. We're all at a game, we're all cheering on our team, we're having a good time, and then disaster strikes. The other team score a goal. The cheering at their end of the stadium goes through the roof, and at our end, it falls silent, and we slump to our seats. For a few minutes, the opposing fans continue cheering on their team, and uh, they're celebrating how great it is to be 1-0 up, but then they turn their attention to us. They point their fingers at us, their fingers at us, and they start chanting, sing when you're winning, you only sing when you're winning, sing when you're winning, you only sing when you're winning, sing when you're winning, and so it goes on and on and on and on for the next few moments. Now, in terms of prose, it's not exactly Shakespearean, but in terms of its impact, it's a pretty devastating blow. You're being told in no uncertain terms that there's a difference between how you respond when things are going well on the pitch to when things are not going well, when your team is up against it. It's one thing to sing when your team is doing well, but look at you now. You're silent. You only sing when you're winning. Maybe, like me, you're not a singer. You don't sing when things are going well, but you do respond in other ways. Maybe at home or at work, when things are going well, you're the life and the soul of the place. But there's a noticeable difference when things are not going so well. Maybe when things are going well, you're approachable and you're generous, but when they're not, you withdraw and you close down. Maybe when things are going well, you mention God a lot in your day-to-day -day conversations, but when life is tough, he doesn't feature much in what you have to say. Well, what does the Bible have to say about how we're to respond in times of adversity, when life is tough and it looks like we're losing? Let's read Habakkuk chapter 3 together. And you'll find it on page 942 of the Church Bibles. 942 in the Church Bibles. And I want you to notice as you turn there, from verse 1, that it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. On Shigoyanoth is the word there. It's a, it's a musical term, as you'll see in the footnote. And notice from the very last sentence, at the end of verse 19, it says, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. It's a bit like what we sometimes see at the start of some of the Psalms. And so this chapter, chapter 3 of Habakkuk, is, according to verse 1, a prayer. But according to verse 9, it's a prayer to be sung. It's a prayer to be, it's to, it's to be made use of in public through music and singing. And with that in mind, let me read what Habakkuk chapter 3 
says. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigoyanoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the sky, sorry, filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and the earth shook. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows and the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in, my, in God my Savior. The Lord, sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the, the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. In these verses, Habakkuk is going to teach us that we don't just praise God when we're winning. He's going to show us that God's revelation of his faithfulness and his justice in the past empowers us to face the future humbly and hopefully. Let's see how he does that just now. The first thing Habakkuk wants us to do in the face of adversity is to plead with God to act again, to plead with God to act again. Notice with me that after the silence across the whole earth at the end of chapter 2, Habakkuk speaks to God again in chapter 3, verse 2. And he starts off by pleading with God to act again. He's pleading with God to act again in the present like he has acted in the past by bringing down corrupt nations. Look with me at verse 2 uh, 
of chapter 3. Such a, a key verse in the passage. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. In this verse, Habakkuk is asking God to repeat his deeds and in his wrath, remember mercy. Now, even if tonight is your first time looking at Habakkuk, uh, you can probably tell from the way that Habakkuk is speaking that things are not exactly going well. That's why he's pleading with God to act again. If things were going well, Habakkuk wouldn't need to be asking God to repeat his awesome deeds again in his time. You see, Habakkuk's country of Judah was part of God's special people. God had been good to them time and time again, and each time Judah had responded by throwing it back in his face. They turned their back on God, and they were a wicked people. And then we saw uh, last week and just uh, how God raised up the Babylonians, uh, an even more wicked people, and he was going to use them to punish Judah. But then the Babylonians themselves would be punished for their wickedness. And that is what we've seen in chapters 1 and 2. And it's against this backdrop that Habakkuk pleads with God to act again in the present time. Now, because sin affects every aspect of our world, most nations become Babylons in one way or another. Wicked, proud, and rejecting God. And I'm not just talking about sort of historical examples uh, like Pol Pot's Cambodia or Stalin's Russia or Hitler's Germany. Even seemingly good nations end up like this, rejecting God. And we see that in our own time. Over the weekend, the Republic of Ireland voted overwhelmingly to overturn the abortion ban. In doing this, Ireland is rejecting the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of life. And of course, in the UK, we're no better. We've, we've had similar laws in place for over 50 years. And this is just one example of the different ways that countries turn their back on what the Bible teaches. And the question is, is God going to let this cycle of the rise and fall of nations, of people turning their back on God, to continue forever? It doesn't really look like God and his people are winning at this point in Habakkuk. And so here, in chapter 3, Habakkuk is saying, God, you are famous for the things that you've done in the past. Please do them again. Please repeat them. Please do them in our time. He's pleading with God to act like God has promised. And not just to do so in a, in a discreet way, but to make these things known so that everyone can know that God is at work. Now, it's probably worth pointing out at this point, that when Habakkuk is talking about God repeating his deeds, he's not talking about uh, God's great deeds like uh, creating a planet or uh, a species of frog. He's talking about uh, very specific things. He's talking about God's great deeds in the past of delivering his people, of saving his people, of rescuing them. Specifically, God's rescue of his people from evil Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. That's what Habakkuk means when he's talking about God's great deeds and as he asks God to repeat them in his time. And here's the question. How bad do things need to get for us to plead with God in the same way? Many of you would have seen this morning the numbers that Angus put up on that map of how dire it is in many parts of the world in terms of the advance of the gospel, including our own. 
How bad does it have to get for us to plead with God to revive his church and to revive this nation and many other nations in the world? What is it going to take for us to align our prayers with the will of God? Billy Graham once said that to get nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. And a former pastor of our church said, men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. Wouldn't it be great if God would give us such a compassion for the lost and such a passion for his glory that we would pray these prayers in our time? How else does Habakkuk teach us to respond in adversity? Well, the second thing Habakkuk does is he praises God for his past and his future rescue. What we need to understand about verses 3 to 15 is that it's a vision that Habakkuk is having of God and of what God has done in the past and of what he's going to do in the future. And some of the imagery from the past rescues that God has carried out is used to describe what God is going to do in the future when God rescues his people for good. To put it another way, in verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk is praising God for judging the wicked and saving his people in the past, and he's also praising God in anticipation of the future judgment of the wicked and his future salvation of his people. And so Habakkuk starts off there in verse 3 by describing God's mighty and terrifying appearance. Verses 3 and 4 say that God's glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. This is meant to remind us of how God uh, appeared at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. In that passage, we read that when thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain, there was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn and all the people trembled. And all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended in it in the form of fire and the whole mountain shook violently. You see, when God arrives to judge human evil, every single person will notice. Everyone will pay attention uh, we won't miss it. I missed my train stop the other day, which was a bit unfortunate. Uh, I was too busy, distracting, uh, distracted, and I was reading something, and I looked up, and my train was going over water, which was quite a freaky experience. And then I realized we're actually going over the fourth bridge, and I'd missed my stop, and I was heading into Fife, uh, which is no bad thing, isn't that right, Barry? Well, when God comes to judge human evil, uh, we're not going to miss it. Uh, we're not going to be distracted by something else. Every one of us will notice God's judgment, just like at Mount Sinai. And just like at Mount Sinai, everyone will tremble. We see that in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. We'll be in such awe of this holy God that we will tremble before him. Notice with me as well the reference to the plagues and the pestilence in verse 5. They're meant to remind us of the Exodus story before Pharaoh let the people go. And they are symbols of God's divine judgment. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future Exodus. 
So just like God came as a warrior and split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, in verse 13, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the leader of the land of wickedness. So Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and the Babylonians who attacked Judah have become the poster boys of violent human nations. And yet in verse 13, we see that when God confronts evil, he's going to do two things. First of all, he's going to deliver his people. Now back in verse 2, Habakkuk says to God, in wrath, remember mercy. And that's exactly what God is going to do as we see in verse 13. He's going to deliver his people. Second, he will save his anointed one. This is a reference both to the king in Habakkuk's time, but also the king from the line of David, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ whose sufferings and glory were predicted by the prophets. And so in this poem, the Exodus story from the past has become an image of the future Exodus that God will perform. God will once again defeat evil. He'll once again bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all the people and rescue the oppressed. And so the people at the time of Habakkuk's writing, before the exile, can look back to the exodus from Egypt as a cause for hope for the future. And those living after the Jerusalem exile can look back at that moment as a great moment of hope. Our situation here in 2018 is not dissimilar. Those of us here who are Christians can look back on the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to reveal the Father and save sinners and destroy the works of the devil. We can look back on that time as a cause for hope while we wait on him coming back again. My grand's got bifocal glasses and it's a bit odd when she's kind of looking up and down with these two different parts in our lens depending on what she's looking at. And, you know, we need to be bifocal as well as Christians. We need to be focused on the great works of God in the past and look forward with great hope in the future, the Lord Jesus Christ's return. We look back with thankfulness and we look forward with hope. This is what will keep us going in times of adversity. The third way that we're to respond to adversity is to do what Habakkuk does at the end of chapter three. At the end of chapter three, Habakkuk professes faith in God. We see that in verses 16 to verse 19. Now much of Habakkuk, as you may have noticed so far, is on a, a national level. It's about what God is doing between two nations. But the book of Habakkuk ends on a very personal note with Habakkuk professing his faith in God. Notice with me the three key professions of faith that Habakkuk makes. <clears throat> First in verse 16, Habakkuk knows that things are going to get worse before they get better. His heart is pounding. His lips are quivering. His bones are decaying and his legs are trembling. Yet, he waits patiently for the day of calamity. The man who cried, how long, Lord, must I call for help, in chapter 1, now says, I'll wait quietly for the work of God. The man who wrestled with God in chapters 1 and 2 is now resting in God 
in chapter 3. He knows that the destruction of his people is coming, but he knows too that God will unleash his own destruction on the Babylonians. And so he waits patiently. Habakkuk's second statement of faith is there in verse 17 and 18, where he's basically saying that though everything is taken from me, my produce and my livestock, I will rejoice in God. And so Habakkuk is a shining example of what God was talking about in chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk is a shining example of how the righteous shall live by faith. Trouble may come to Habakkuk. In fact, it will come to Habakkuk but he will rejoice in the Lord. Here we find one of the greatest expressions of faith found anywhere in the Bible. This is the very opposite of just singing when you're winning. This is singing when you're not winning. This is praising God in the time of calamity. Verses 17 and 18 are words to tell ourselves when our experience is telling us something different. They are words that our mouth can say until our mind, uh, our mouth, <laughs> till our mind and our head, our mind and our heart catch up, sorry. Habakkuk spends a lot of time in verses 3 to 15 praising God for what he has done, but he ends by praising God for who he is in verse 18. Not rejoicing in what the Lord has done, but rejoicing in the Lord. Not being joyful because God has saved me, but being joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk is delighting in God, not in what he gets from God. There is a distinct difference. Everything is going to go for Habakkuk, and all that remains is God. And that is enough. God is everything to him. For some people, this prayer might be especially relevant right now. Life is hard. It seems like you've lost a lot, if not everything. You know what suffering is. You know what loss is. Grief comes and goes in waves. I'll never forget where I was when I first heard the song, Blessed Be Your Name. It was 2005, and I just had an email from my parents, which contained some devastating news. Uh, and there was nothing I could do. I was on the other side of the world on a mission trip in Cambodia. And we had a church service that night, and the music leader introduced this song, which I'd never heard before. Uh, and I don't mind sharing that it was very hard to sing the words of that song. If, if you know it, you'll know what I mean. When you feel like you're in a desert place or walking through the wilderness, it's hard to say to God, blessed be your name. When the darkness is closing in or you're on a road marked with suffering, it's hard to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet, say it we must, because it's true. When we're going through a bad experience, we need to remind ourselves that God is good. Even if it's through tears, uh, even if it's through gritted teeth, even if you can't sing, and all you can do is nod in agreement, with the words that are being sung. We must do so. That is still faith. That is still professing faith in our good God. Maybe this isn't your experience just now, and life is actually pretty straightforward at the moment. 
Well, you can use this prayer as well. You can use it to pray for somebody that you know is struggling. You can ask God to help them in the midst of their loss to be joyful in God, their Savior. And it might be a, a prayer for you to just, to, in a sense, keep in your back pocket. Things might be fine just now, but this is a prayer to have in reserve for the difficulties that we all face. One of uh, my wife's friends actually read this part of Habakkuk at our wedding. Uh, now, I hope she didn't do it because she was trying to suggest that marrying me was like losing everything. Um, I hope that wasn't the case. I think probably what was the case was that she was trying to communicate in a way that actually not every day is like your wedding day. Wedding days are joyful occasions, full of celebration, uh, but much of life is hard. And I think she was encouraging us uh, gently to remember this, even in a, the, amongst all the joy of our wedding day. The third statement of faith is there in verse 19 where Habakkuk says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. What Habakkuk is doing here is he's, he's professing his sure-footed faith in God. From the start of chapter one to here in chapter three, Habakkuk has been on quite a journey. He's gone from the depths to the heights. He's gone from falling on his face, crying out, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, to the end of chapter three, where he describes himself as treading on the heights, even in extreme adversity, even when he knows the day of calamity is on its way. How can he go from such depths to such heights? Because God has spoken. His God has answered his complaints, and he's shown him what he is going to do and what he is like. You see, Habakkuk, like us, depends on God's revelation. He needs to know what God is like. He needs to know what God has said. He needs to know what God has done, and he needs to know what God is going to do. And he knows that God is faithful to his promises. He's saved his people in the past, and he's going to save them again. And verses 16 to 19, taken together, are three big rock-solid statements of faith. I want to ask you tonight, have you got that rock-solid assurance in your life? Maybe you're exploring Christianity. Let me ask you, if everything got taken off of you, your job, your home, uh, your most important relationships, your reputation, what would you have left? What would you pin your hopes on? Would the, the, the bottom of your world drop out? And I want to ask you also, would you not rather have the rock-solid assurance, the rock-solid hope for the future that Habakkuk has? The only way to have that is to have your sins forgiven. You see, your sin is what separates you from God. It's the sin that makes you subject to the wrath of God that we've heard about so far in Habakkuk. The, the wrath that Habakkuk talks about in verse 2 when he says, in wrath, remember mercy. Mercy is available to you if you come to God and say sorry for your sins and acknowledge that Jesus died for you. And if you ask God to help you live in his strength and not your own. Following Christ is not a walk in the park. The life of Habakkuk 
It shows that, and the lives of many people in this church will testify to that. But there is another day of calamity coming when Jesus will return. And when he returns, he's not coming to give us all another chance again. He's coming to judge. He's coming to uh, judge the wicked who've rejected his reign. And he's going to come for those who have lived by faith and take them to be with him. Those who are rejoicing in him. You will not mistake that day. Habakkuk 3 has shown us that. And so I'd urge you now, if you don't have this rock-solid assurance, to turn to God now while mercy is still possible. Habakkuk shows us that the way to respond to adversity is to plead with God to act again, to praise God for his past and future acts of judgment and salvation, and to profess our faith in God. And if we step back and take the book as a whole, we've seen uh, something of God's judgment upon the wicked. Uh, we've seen that evil is self-destructive. But most importantly, we've seen the value of faith. By it, the, Hab uh, the, the people in Habakkuk's day, the righteous, would live. And it's exactly the same today. We've read a few times from Romans uh, throughout this little series. And it's interesting that in Romans chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul is describing how both Jew and Gentile will be saved, he quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4. And it's interesting that when the writer to the Hebrews uh, is talking to his readers about persevering in faith, he also quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. So whether we're talking about becoming a Christian or whether we're talking about persevering as a Christian, it's by faith that the righteous will live. They always have done and they always will do. Not a shallow faith. Not the kind of faith or confidence that those, have, that those people have who only sing when they're winning. No, a deep-rooted faith that knows what it is to wrestle with God, but ultimately to rest in Him. A faith that can be expressed by Habakkuk, who can say, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in my Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. Let's pray.